Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Emerging Pod, where we guide emerging people into emerging careers. Today's guest is Leanne Fitzpatrick. Leanne has a rich experience growing data team. She built teams for startups, SMEs, and large corporates. She's now a director. She's now the director of data science at the Financial Times. She's the she's a thought leader in MLOps in the MLOps community, and most notably, she's on the AI developers to watch in 2023. Leanne, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much, Sofiane. What a lovely intro. So lovely to be with you. It's really nice to have you. So let's just jump straight into it. Um, you studied maths and music, which we thought was really interesting. What made you, what prompted you to choose those two subjects? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I guess back then I didn't realize that I would probably described myself as a polymath um, when I was in my teens and I had a very rich diverse set of interests so had ended up going down a very traditional education route and uh, had ended up with A-levels in history, textiles, maths and music and had a strong passion for uh, music. I used to go to a music school at a weekend um, and really did want to do the best of both worlds which was to study both maths and music which turned out to be really hard in the UK. And um, so uh, found out that things like joint honours degrees worked, uh, which I guess for anyone listening in from the US thinking, what, why can't you just take a major and a minor? And um, it doesn't really exist like that in the UK. You've got to uh, pick pick one subject and that's you if you want to do a degree in it. Um, and so I was lucky enough to stumble across that at Leeds. And I guess the reason why is that I've always had a big creative bone in my body um I'm left-handed as well which probably like speaks to that creativity aspect um so if I'm in my free time I very rarely sit like programming and doing things in data science I'm not gonna lie my, my creative interest drives more in terms of doing some kind of sewing singing doing some kind of creative hobby previously always playing my guitar singing etc so um and always picking up some kind of new artsy thing to try out that I probably generally fail at <laughs> yeah, so so that's where that came from um I think I think it brought, brought a lot of different opportunities for me though did have big regrets sometimes not doing a 100% math degree when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next I think the most shocking thing that you said from that is the fact that lefties are more creative is that real is that true <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing <laughs> I just said I'm left-handed so that might have something I did not make the. I'm, I'm just going to caveat this. I haven't made a declaration that you know left-handers are champions in, in creativity, but I do. I, I think it's that left hand, left hand, right hand side of the brain thing that apparently mm. exists. I don't know. I'm not a neuro expert, but we won't we won't quote you on that one. <laughs> uh, I know that lefties have an advantage in basketball. Ah. I didn't know they, they also have an advantage in the creative sector, but that's good to know. Again, I'm not quoting any stuff. <laughs> just, <laughs> it was just like thoughtful, uh, definitely not empirical evidence. Let's just put it that way. So you mentioned that you've felt at a disadvantage sometimes because you studied music and you didn't just fully de dedicate yourself to mathematics. How, when did that happen? 
Yeah, so at certain points, I guess, certainly when I was determining what I wanted to do next after my degree and, you know, any kind of grad programs, a lot of them needed at least 80% of your modules to have been in mathematics. They didn't necessarily look flavorably on people that kind of had gone down a more yeah polymath or a hybrid approach. Um, and then certainly when, therefore, I was looking at uh, post I, I did a postgraduate qualification and master's after my maths and music degree. Um, and I was lucky enough that I could stay on at Leeds and I therefore took a, that in financial mathematics. But if I'd wanted to do it in straight maths, I would have had to go back and do some more math modules in my undergraduate degree. So very just like really interesting anecdotes, things that you don't really think about until you're in your final year or you've just finished your, your university degree and thinking, oh, wait, there's a lot of like caveats here that, yours it was lovely to express my creativity and I would never change that for the world being able to write um, some great compositions during my degree and being able to write a great dissertation about the underpinning of maths uh, um, behind music hmm. um, but um, yeah it became a little bit like tenuous when I was like what am I going to do next and if I'd ever wanted to pursue like a fully postdoctorate route and do a PhD it could have been a little bit difficult if I hadn't found like a master's so yeah it was a it was a interesting um realization afterwards but I'd say now where I am now in the workplace I think it's more of an interesting thing to talk about I think I bring more flavors of uh things that people are like oh that's quite uh, interesting what do you do with that and I definitely think the way my brain works that that side of that creativity that comes from music and um some of that training definitely helps when you think from a problem sets from a, in a different way than just from a maybe a very uh, mathematical approach a hundred percent the more diverse the better um people from different that have different backgrounds teams that have people with different backgrounds are generally more creative and they can they can find um interesting solutions to, to challenges if you just have uniform people that have the same background and studied the same things, you're not really going to get too far. Um, that's crazy. Yeah. It, it's interesting to see that you've kind of transcended that. So then, um, moving after your, um, after studies, your first role, how did you, how did you find, what was the first role? How did you find it? And how did you manage that process? Yeah, so I actually found my first role after doing my master's in financial mathematics. And that degree was a bit of a hybrid. I guess it was like data science before its time because it was this kind of macro micro economics of business coupled with um, hardcore statistics, like seven years of university level statistics right up to like postdoctorate, um, coupled with um, like uh, Black Scholes algorithms, like very uh, fine ma mathematics for finance. And then everything was evaluated in comp, comp sci. So you had to be able to program in C++ everything you'd written in your stats and your mathematics modules. So it's just like really insane, like boot camp that probably like most uh, data science people in my field now probably go through something similar, but it didn't, data science as a master's didn't exist back then. And so coming out of that, um, and I'd studied in Leeds, my really my only options in terms of staying on that career path was to go down to London to kind of be a quant finance specialist or to I really had an appetite for business risk. And that was something I really wanted to work in. Um, but uh, I'd met my partner at the time oh, now. Congrats. It's been for 10 years. Um, and uh, we had um, <laughs> we had um, 
uh, we had decided to stay in Leeds. Uh, he was doing his uh, PhD at Leeds. And so trying to find roles was really difficult. Oh, this like really complex masters that I didn't really understand how to apply to a non-finance sector. So I fell into a risk analyst role at um, a credit bureau. So for anybody that isn't aware, like credit bureaus are essentially um, the independent kind of mediators for all of the data that goes into a loan or decision making around your identity that might be on a mortgage or credit application. And so I found a a role doing that. And so essentially what I ended up doing was building risk models, but for customers around kind of applying for mortgages or loans or credit card applications in a hub that then fed those to various different banks or or, um, lenders of different capacities. So that's what I did. I remember a lot of like interesting like it was really like a learning curve doing that but I also had a lot of interesting nights where I was like this (laughs) this work is quite boring in comparison to like this like really insane really like difficult like masters I'd done it then I was like I'm just applying some logistic regression models and some you know um some decision trees to figure out what's going to happen to somebody's like like whether or not somebody should or shouldn't have a credit card. And I was like, <laughs> is this really like the meaning of my life? Um, so I was like in this existential crisis, definitely for the first year. Um, but I kind of then settled into kind of the, the opportunity in that space. Um, so I definitely, I think it's really hard coming out of that like education system and going into your first role. And I think there's a lot of that like mismanagement of like what it is that, people are going to do in their certainly for their like first role until you kind of get into that field for commercial businesses versus actually what you've kind of been trained or what you think you're going to be doing I think we're getting better um but and certainly like I think apprenticeships and things like that bridge some of that gap but certainly coming out of university with quite a high high level of like postdoctoral qualification you're like is this the right thing for me i'm not too sure i can't even imagine because you also didn't get the creative side going either so you were just getting none of what really attracted you to math and music yeah exactly so i'm just i in my luckily actually my first year of my role i was planning we were planning for our wedding um so like for a couple of years time so what i was doing was i i made all my bridesmaids dresses so my creative outlet was all in my free time so that was one way i did i did like manage that was like you know the one thing i did really enjoy was that you know that blissful enjoyment that you get when you first come out of like intense education and upskilling of having that differentiation between like the work day and then your home day like your home time and like the weekends and things like that and it felt really weird that there was suddenly this sacred time that I could do things that weren't like you've got to study and I, I think that's really easy to sometimes forget when you've not been studying in that kind of way for you know 10 plus 12 plus years not to say that we're not constantly learning and evolving and I'm, I'm constantly reading things but I feel like I have a different approach to when you're like I've got to get this dissertation written by <laughs> next week you know yeah and in, in the world of work there's always there will always be work so there's no it never ends so. <laughs> yeah exactly uh, and then from there you get into a uh, into hello soda as a head of analytics how did that opportunity came about? Yeah, so I was really fortunate um, that 
at the time, the, some of the uh, peers and some of the uh, senior stakeholders I worked with that weren't directly in my department but knew of me at um, the company I was working for at the time called Core Credit, and then subsequently is now TransUnion, um, knew of some of the work that I'd been doing um, across the business um, in terms of kind of thinking very differently about how we applied, uh, you know, credit data to different um, areas like the automotive industry and things like that. And they had gone off to set up a startup called Hallett Soda at the time to focus on alternative data for identity verification and personalization. And uh, I was lucky enough that they kind of reached out uh, after setting up to say, hey, do you want to come on this journey with us and and help us build out um, some really interesting data capabilities? And I guess that was my first foray into realizing, oh, there's a world where we need to be able to apply these really uh, predictive analytical capabilities, but within an engineering stack. And that might be something called data science. Um, And so, yeah, so ended up kind of building um, much more kind of sophisticated machine learning models on very alternative data to, um, you know, do identity verification right through to kind of personalization, a lot of like text analytics. Um, back in the day when you know we, we've come a long way in the uh, natural language processing space uh, and LTK has since been very deprecated and uh, some, you know um, superseded by Spacey for example and you know there was no such thing as the sorry and um, you know so very different space back then but uh, really interesting challenges and trying to build a lot of those machine learning capabilities a lot of the time from scratch because the open source market wasn't wasn't what it was back at the end of 2014 2015 so um yeah uh that was how I stumbled into that I think my my message there is it's definitely like who you know sometimes and not what you know and that was definitely where I leaned into my network and was lucky to to kind of um, have established a relationship that allowed me to step into startup land Nice. And was it also where you got the, the the opportunity to travel to the US and work from there? Yeah, it was as well. So I was with Halosoda for uh, six years. So um, I helped develop out the data capability. Um, so I was responsible for building um, the data um, systems, uh, all of our machine learning capabilities, and then building a team. And uh, so a team of data scientists, team of data engineers, um, and uh, essentially uh therefore i uh, had an opportunity that uh my husband and i uh, my husband had also had an opportunity to go out and work in austin texas and i've been to and from austin because uh we had offices out there we had a satellite and given that i had developed a lot of the machine learning models that we used to kind of for our services i did a lot of training with our sales staff out there and uh so i was lucky enough to be able to manage my team back in the uk but then work uh, remotely from our in office um, uh, for, a, for a year and a half so I really had a great time and before that been traveling over there a lot and Austin is a really cool place to live and work and to see and visit if you haven't been out definitely in the music capital of the states um, obviously Nashville is as well but um, Austin is, is a it's a really cool city um, and a lot of it's a bit of a melting hub of cultures so really really super inclusive in this very very red state which surprises yeah. a lot of people but Every so often you do get to see somebody riding a horse <laughs> down the middle of like Broadway. Like what's going on? <laughs> Amongst the giant kind of Ford F-150s and pickup trucks, 
those are the occasional horse yeah I've I've seen that as well. exactly like I remember taking photos of like some of my friends trucks like their wheels would come to my <laughs> shoulders <laughs> everything's no, bigger in Texas absolutely yeah especially the food portions yeah, don't don't get me started on barbecue because <laughs> we could take over the podcast talking about it. We actually, when we moved back here, um, uh, the first investment piece we had uh, was a low and slow smoker. So that's a regular staple in our house. So uh, apologies for anybody that isn't a meat eater uh, and listening <laughs> in. But we do get a lot of uh, grilling and, and, and slow, slow, slow cooking. Uh, brisket and chicken is a regular thing that happens in our house as, as well as we do do actually a lot of uh, vegan options because uh, uh, you can uh, do a lot of uh, cold smoking as well as uh, you know things like smoked cherry tomatoes and turning that into your own salsa it's, uh, yeah, so just, yeah. <laughs> food is a whole nother podcast <laughs> Texan food is a whole nother podcast <laughs> and now I'm hungry smoking meat <laughs> creating this smoking meats podcast <laughs> You can host it with Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, just going back to then your your role at Hello Soda, was it there where you the first time you hired data scientist as well? Yeah, it was, and I'm, I, I'd love to share a bit of a funny story about that. So at the time, you know, data science, I think I can't quite remember the year. I think it was 2012 or 2013, right? It was Indeed's, you know, uh, or Reed's, uh, you know, best job of the year was data scientists, and everybody was sort of, we were going through this transition then in that kind of 2014, 2015, 2016 stage where a lot of, like, analyst or you know kind of advanced analytical roles were being transferred to the title of data scientist and we knew uh, our organization the type of data challenges that we had very very unstructured you know we were using mongodb to kind of just dump lots and lots of data into a very um like unstructured what would you call like now like a data lake essentially no structure to it and then we were being needing because we were sourcing all this information for very different alternative sources uh, web analytics right through to kind of social data and then kind of needing to do lots of like uh, advanced uh, an analysis and then predictive kind of insights on it as well and be able to like serve that in a very low latency way so if we were to build a model that was predictive about saying okay this person is who they say they are we need to not only grab all that information on that user and say okay this is the uh, then apply the model to actually say yes this is who they say they are in quite a short you know millisecond space of time and that was all quite a new very like new field at, at the time in terms of the types of data we were working with and so we were like okay we need data scientists but it was still in that weird moment where we didn't really understand you know there was you know team microsoft data science process which if anyone isn't familiar with it's like the the kind of one of the standards for how you do data science didn't exist until october 2016 so you know we were all kind of making up the methods and kind of figuring it out and all sort of figuring it out probably at the same time but we also didn't really therefore define like what are these roles doing like and what are the skills that you bring like we had an inclination but everybody was kind of like looking at the 
other people's like job specs and like copying and pasting the best bit and you know we have these like periods right where people like looking for a data scientist with 10 years commercial data science experience you're like well the role's only been around for like two years you know so be really like careful around like it, it, it seems funny like at the time like it was just this like you know you see it on LinkedIn all the time somebody would be like I found a new one with like you know 15 years experience in this, in this you know or like funny things like um you know five years experience with docker well docker like the first version of docker again didn't get released until 2016 you know things like this so like you're like where is this stuff coming from so um i there was all that going on on the backdrop of actually these are the types of roles that we know we need for the type of thing that we're trying to build as a business and so we'd kind of put these sort of roles out for kind of data science and i remember i remember thinking oh am I a data scientist now Does, is that what I do I, I'm not too sure like I guess so like I'm building these predictive services and then I'm putting them into you know production environments to make decisions and these things are you know alive and you know the main revenue driver for our business I think that makes me a data scientist and uh doing an interview once with a data scientist that came into the uh to the interview in a full leather jacket with sunglasses on and sat down very cool I remember thinking oh man this person looks so cool and he sat down and we did the interview he never took his sunglasses off and I remember thinking at the end of the interview is that what I should look like is that a data scientist like should, should I be like I don't know what I'm supposed to like you know and it was just like really like interesting but chaotic time for the whole like for the whole professional field because we were all just like scrabbling around thinking we need these people who can do this but we don't really know kind of we kind of know what we we need people to do and the experience that they need for our business but there was no like standard right I'm so relieved the world, like where we are in terms of our professional market and kind of maybe the qualifications aren't still perfect, but I think there's a much better alignment of expectations. So fortunately, I don't sit around in a leather jacket with sunglasses <laughs> on. I might have taken it seriously. <laughs> yeah, that would have been funny to see next day, your whole team just show up with sunglasses, leather jacket. Maybe some some gel in the hair as well. Although I don't think that would be a bad world to live in. <laughs> if you could easily spot the different types of professions by the way they dress. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Although back to the inclusivity thing, right? I think I would hate it if I was in a team of data that's scientists that all look the same. Yeah. So, oh, that's actually a very good story. Um, so fast forward to today. You are at the Financial Times. Um, you're a director of data science. What what does data science mean um, for the Financial Times? How do you how does that look like? Yeah, so I guess there's what my team does, and then there's like what does data science mean at the FT. Um, I guess more holistically, if we just think about what data science is, right? We're applying AI, machine learning, the subset of AI, machine learning, and then, you know, deep learning and different applications of machine learning models to different business challenges. And so within the FT for my my team, specifically what we're looking at is actually, um, so the way the FT works is that uh, we have a series of different uh, 
the departmental groups. So we have our B2B business, we have our B2C business, we have product and tech, which is responsible for kind of supporting all of the products that we put out there because the FT isn't just the pink newspaper. Um, it's a variety of different products that we have out there. We have, uh, so not only just FT.com and app and the, and the news and the print newspaper, but we have things like FT Live. So that's our events stream. We have FT Specialist, which is a series of like smaller niche publisher published uh, titles um we also have um a new product development in our uh, professional arm um and so there's a lot going on um, at the ft and then we also obviously have editorial and so that's more the traditional editorial the newsroom that you see that actually creates the uh, great quality journalism that uh, goes into print and ft.com and app and uh in the newsroom, we have a fantastic uh, data journalism and visualization team. So they kind of got one of their, they also have a data scientist, but then in my team, um, essentially our team is responsible for what you can think of everything that doesn't go into the publishing piece, right? So supporting the business um, in terms of the fact that we're a subscription organization. So right through to from like very traditional types of data science modeling. So that might be like churn propensity, next best action type models. So what's the user going to do next? Uh, it might be thinking about how do we understand the lifetime value of our users uh, right through to more interesting applications like uh, contextual ads and understanding which ads to serve when on our, some of our ads uh, perspective. And then right through to kind of how do we help with new product development? So how do we understand the context of our content, how does that and then potentially allow us to do things like semantic search and then build new product capabilities on top of that. So our, our data science team touches on kind of everything that isn't the kind of the print um, things that you see in print, but everything that kind of supports the FT underneath that. Hmm, that's really interesting. What do you think are some of the challenges that um, the FT as a, as a effectively media organization is facing? at the moment and how do you think what do you think is the role of data science to to help overcome that it's a very poignant timely and interesting question um obviously we're all in the ai and machine learning space uh, at the moment very aware of the uh, ai buzz that we've had with chat gpt and, and bard um and i think you know the uh, the expansion of generative ai and kind of large language models is a huge great capability, like I said, where for me to see the natural language processing space come on in such an incredible kind of pace and, you know, for a variety of reasons, right, not just to not just computational um, capability, but for a variety of other, other perspectives. But what that does put us in is this like really interesting crux point where we're going through a new kind of transformational wave in machine learning. And I think, uh, you know, the FT's kind of view on this is, well, I wouldn't say it's the FT views, but there's there's a certainly a media view on this, which is, you know, that we need to lean into um, kind of some of these capabilities. Right. But you also have to be very, very cognizant and aware of what they are. So, you know, just like you search exists right now. And that's something that we, we have. The web exists. Um, hiding away from these things isn't going to kind of enable you to kind of lean into them and to kind of develop your business. Mm -hmm. So you need to kind of be leaning into them, but you also have to be, and I'm sure we could have a whole podcast about this, but very aware of the ethical impactful 
applicate like impact of such things like um you know specifically with chat gpt i don't think hopefully uh, you know, uh, I don't want to teach anybody to suck eggs on this uh, podcast. So, um, you know, I, I. But hopefully, everybody's aware that you know it, it is very um, hallucinogenic. So, yeah, I don't know if anybody saw the article at the weekend that was about the crocheters who asked ChatGPT to uh, get ChatGPT GPT to write them some uh, crochet patterns, and essentially the uh, um, ChatGPT put out these new patterns that looked exactly like a normal um, crochet pattern, and so looked really like great. They were like, great, okay, I've asked it to create me a novel uh, pattern. And uh, they went away and uh, created these, uh, did the crochet, um, and turned out that the things that it create they created looked like monsters. They said they were horrendous. So, like, essentially, you know, the eyes were all out of proportion. The body shape was completely out of proportion. And I think it's a really great manifestation mm. for people that aren't familiar with kind of the under the hoods lyings of how these models are put together that essentially the way ChatGPT, we believe that it's been kind of trained is that it's kind of been reinforced essentially to speak with like such confidence, even when it might be quite wrong. And that therefore is quite dangerous in terms of the way it presents fact and the way it presents kind of information, um, because it will be taken as fact. So i again go, kind of goes without saying you ask it to say what's the top 10 published papers in say cancer research and likely the authors don't exist the titles don't exist and the pa- the, pe- the, pu- the publishing the place it's been published to the journals probably don't exist either so the way it's kind of been the underlying semantics of the way this model's been developed has resulted in kind of a process this kind of ai that speaks with really like confidence and truth um, and really takes a, a human lens that isn't just kind of just eyeballing and assuming that things that it says like when we go on wikipedia right there's a kind of a blind peer review um to be able to actually Uh, put information on there you know there's a contribution process for wikipedia but there is a process that also kind of does catch anything that doesn't sound about right through the blind review process and so we don't have any of those mechanisms or the safeguards right now in chat gpt so the way you know businesses are going to apply these things i think it's um you know there's a sensitivity there around definitely lean in you know the world is kind of ai is, is kind of at forefront at the moment of kind of possibility and there's no reason to kind of see how that might be able to be used in your business but definitely um, be very very conscious of kind of how you want to use that and then some of the real implications for somewhere like the FT is the copyright issues you know the sensitivity you know anything that you put on say chat GPT for example if you're going to use open AI's chat GPT that information becomes available in the public domain. So you need to be quite sensitive around what you're kind of using that. If you want to go away and build your own large language model, you might build that internally, but you need a lot of compute power to be able to do it. So we're in this really interesting space at the moment, and hopefully I won't kind of hear this back in six months' time and kick myself and think, oh, what did I say that? What was I talking about? I should have said this instead. Um, but I think the, the biggest thing that I can say at the moment is that there's a huge ethics consideration and, and the kind of the impact to actually people that are not practitioners or not professionals or not very um, 
cognizant of how things are built in this space. We need to really help them understand how things have been built, because I think it's a bit unfair that we're in this situation where OpenAI have democratized this type of machine learning model and said, hey, everybody, go away and play with it. Have fun. But not really also held up the other end of the bargain, which is, well, here's here's how it's kind of been built. And here's some of the safeguards that should go with when you want to play with something like this. Um, I think we'll get there, but I always feel like the safeguards come come after the like big shiny thing to go away and play with. Yeah, move fast, break things. <laughs> it's still the the bottle probably in many places. But yeah, despite uh, it, it is a bit ironic that despite the name, OpenAI's models are still quite closed source, and you don't really know what's happening um, under the hood. And I think yeah, it becomes problematic, particularly maybe for for a media publication that if you use um, ChatGPT or other similar kind of large language models and most of the the responses most of the information 95 percent of it will probably be harmless kind of uh, useful responses to to your queries but then some edge cases will probably not be and then the issue is that you from those from that 95 percent of of useful answers you kind of get to build a lot of trust into the model so you assume that anything that it's going to output will be valid and correct so then those 5% edge cases can become extremely problematic, again, particularly for maybe um, a media publication like the Financial Times, who might be seen to, to take a bias or other different things. Um, yeah, so yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's going to be an interesting space, and it's definitely uh, very topical for us at the moment. And so I don't have any answers in terms of uh, what the FT is going to do. But I think I definitely know the things that we're massively considering and, and how do we make sure that we're having a very responsible and ethical stance at the very forefront of that. Mm, that's really interesting. How do you think skills will be impacted by uh, kind of the increasing prevalence of large language models that seem to start to automate a lot of aspects of jobs. Yeah, so we always have these like big headlines, right? You know, robots are going to take all everybody's jobs. And I think that's been happening in kind of the AI data science space for a while. Um, I would definitely say, again, we're at that another buzz hype point. Uh, I, you know, definitely is there's no way that chat GPT can be done without human in the loop. Mm. I definitely, there's some applications, right? But there's, there's still going to, you're still going to need that, whether it be creative or, um, you know, statistical eye or like, you know, in very inspectful eye over kind of what chat GPT does. So I think the, the the nature of the phrasing is what does this free me up to do to do better right so the translation piece like it doesn't mean we're never going to need translators of course but what it does mean is that translators don't have to spend their time you know translating something uh, a very basic sentence but can focus much more on the intuition around language around you know how do you make sarcasm in english sound the same in spanish that's a really difficult very niche mm -hmm. like challenge um and i i think hopefully most people working in that space that's one that they want to be solving not the kind of the very basic kind of just direct translation from x to x and you know we've already got capabilities in the likes of that of google translate it's just that kind of the capabilities within some of the gpt and the large language models untap some of that even more and you know we've been doing a lot of this kind of translation stuff in a, in the machine learning space with kind of long-term short memory 
allowed us to untap a lot of this capability um, a few years ago and get a lot better at translation, for example. So that's one example where I'm saying it's already been happening for a while. And people that are working in the space realize that it's just a, it's a, there's a nature shift in the type of activity that you do. And hopefully it means that we're all freed up a little bit to use our the minds in the way that we want to be using. I, I think nobody you know, in a hundred years time, wouldn't it be lovely if people don't have to be working, you know, the traditional nine to five and they're freed up to be, to do much more creative things because actually the, the, the basic kind of, um, uh, kind of basic capability, sometimes the things that we have to focus on, you know, like copying and pasting things from a spreadsheet is much more like, you know, it's automated processes. And so therefore we're freed up to do a lot more kind of of the application and then you can do things in maybe shorter spaces of time. I think there's, there's a lot, there's a lot there that I think we'll see that transformation happen, but I definitely don't think it's a case of suddenly we're all going to be not in our jobs anymore. And that's proven right by things like, um, GitHub Copilot, you know, um, engineers are definitely not out of their job by a long shot. What it means is that they're like just way more efficient and they can do a lot, a lot more in the time that they have. Yeah, absolutely. And if, in the case of GitHub Copilot, I think I've seen that it's actually more beneficial for senior developers because they're actually more used to reading code. So they can actually just go through a few different examples and template very quickly and decide which one, which one they want to which one they want to go for um switching gears a little bit what's uh what's the data science culture like at uh, ft compared to the previous companies that you've been in yeah that's a great question um so you know i'm uh, really really proud of kind of the inclusivity of our team we have a you know a 60 4% of our um, team are uh, identify as women. Um, and then I've got a number of, uh, I've also got my team split between uh, London and Sofia, Bulgaria. Um, and we've also got a number of like career switchers in, in, in our team as well. So people who have done um, different kind of um, career before making a switch into data science. That brings back to our point earlier around kind of um, having those different perspectives, having those different different um, thoughts around approaches um, in data science that really brings a different viewpoint. Um, I think there's a lot to be said about uh, the FT as a whole in terms of our culture and what we value and inclusivity is very, very at the heart of that. Um, coupled with kind of you know some of our journalistic values be you know very much um, running through our whole business so you know trustworthy independent um, uh, uh, honest uh, and, and very like integral uh, having a lot of integrity um, and you see like a lot of a lot of that resonate in all of the teams across the FT and I think what that really means in in uh, our team is you know we want to be able to build the right things for the right the for the right reasons but also in a way that's like allows lots of different thoughts lots of different processes and so where I've worked previously for say more value-driven organizations where kind of a lot of the the decision making was very much about the bottom line and I'm constantly having to justify 
why we were doing certain things in data science to try and help that bottom line. Here, it's a slightly different um, language that you we use in terms of kind of the, the projects that we're working on and why they're important and the strategic goals that they stack up to for the FT. Obviously, FT is still a commercial organization, but our kind of our goals and our aspirations as a business look slightly different. And so it's this real, like we've got this real warm place where we're able to kind of curate spaces for people to have that freedom to kind of really challenge approaches, have the time as well, because there's a bit there around like if you're constantly running at 100 miles an hour to get things delivered, you don't you never have time to step back and say, hey, is this the right thing that we should be working on? So there's a bit around that. And then, you know, next week, my um, my team is over from Sofia to London and we're doing a whole bunch of different activities. We're off bouldering in one of the afternoons and then we're off to see a news media exhibition at the Tate so um yeah we like getting together and, and doing something slightly different um yeah nice nice and in terms of do you hire uh, early career data scientists yeah, so we have a number of uh, data scientists in our team who it's been their first role out of university um, and they've we have a really good trajectory in terms of um, uh, upskilling those roles into senior roles um, and also uh, beyond. So we do have somebody in my team who uh, started at the FT as a data scientist after she completed her PhD and she has uh, had a really great uh, uh, she's delivered a lot of great quality work for us at the FT and uh, ended up with a senior position and then now as a lead data scientist uh, reporting into me. So we uh, we have a really good kind of internal promotion pathway. Uh, we're trying to carve out a bit more of a definition for junior data science roles at the moment. I still have a very small lean team. So I have a total team of 13, which is uh, 11 uh, data scientists uh, and uh, two engineers. And uh, that means that there's only so much that we can do because we're not like a huge team in terms of kind of uh, opportunities and development. But where they exist, we kind of have this lovely way of being able to bring people up from data scientists to senior. And if you want to focus on more technical uh, individual contribution or if you want to go and down the more of a line management path and then up to lead and then all being well kind of into that data science manager or principal role um, underneath director and so what we're trying to introduce is more of that junior path to carve that out where we've hired a number of uh, people out of uh, once they've finished say a um, either a uh, like a degree or an apprenticeship program or um, or it's their first role um, coming into the data science field um, but yeah a number of our uh, data scientists are it's their first role in data science so so it's uh, really great because we have a lot of good systems. Uh, I can't take credit for this because I've, I've only been there since, uh, well, I've actually been there uh, coming up two years, so July 2021. But um, we have a lot of kind of good processing and documentation in place. And obviously that all needs kind of maintaining. But uh, for kind of getting people up to speed with how we work, uh, we've, we've so far, Touchwood had a bit of a good run with that. So uh, a good environment, even though we don't say have like a traditional grad program or anything like that mm, sounds like a great environment so then if i would join as a junior data scientist what would i what would my work look like what would i be doing 
Yeah, so you get stuck straight in on one of our project squads. So, for example, if you were to join us tomorrow, you might be working on, we've got two recommendation models that we're building at the moment, one for um, something around our professional workspace and one more around our on-site experience. Um, so you'd be embedded into one of those. So you'd be learning a lot about recommendation models uh, if you're not familiar with them already. So what's the difference between uh, content versus collaborative filtering um, and how does that work? and what was the one we're going to apply. Uh, you'd be working in probably a team of at least three data scientists with one of them being the project lead. And you'd be getting straight stuck in kind of uh, with stand-ups uh, every day about what, what's going to be worked on, planning every couple of weeks about what needs to be done and say the sprint. So that might be like the two weeks of work that you're going to do next. And that might be that you go away and you grab a number of our content. So our, say our articles, and you might need to pass that and do some exploratory data analysis to understand how we're going to build this recommendation. Um, and you might do some exploring around uh, what machine learning method should you apply from a recommendation stance. And then you actually be responsible with the team for building that model. Um, and you'd also get the chance to be working very closely with the stakeholders. So we work very closely with our product managers in whichever area we're working on. So understanding exactly how once that model's been built, how's going to get exposed to the business, how's going to get consumed so that we can start thinking straight away about how we're going to be able to maintain that. Because as a junior data scientist, you're also going to have to start thinking about how does that get maintained, not by yourself, but, but as part of the team. Um, how does that feed into kind of how we support all of the different models that we're serving the business all the time? And also, how are we going to evaluate the success of that model? So you'll be kind of responsible for scoping with the, pro the, the project lead to think about, OK, so once it is on the website or on the um, on site in the app or served through a push notification, how are we actually going to monitor the success so we know whether or not this model is actually performing properly? So that's you get stuck in pretty much straight away. Uh, we're very much operating in an R environment at the moment. So we, our major uh, language that we use for building models is R, but we also have a number of models that we are starting to write in Python. And you'd also be exposed uh, at the moment to the the some of the new capabilities we're building in terms of our machine learning operations and our new uh, engineering and infrastructure kind of ways of doing things so that our models are a little bit more scalable and making sure that they can support the business areas we need to. So lots of uh, new workshops happening at the moment. Sounds super exciting. So just to make sure we're on the same page, that's a formal job offer for me tomorrow. <laughs> I, I mean, you might have to go through a few little recruitment process, but yeah, and I'm, I'm more than happy to share a little bit about our recruitment process if that's useful for, for, for folks listening. Please do, yeah. Please, please do, yeah. Yeah, so um, yeah, if you were to apply for us, Alex, which I'm sure you would absolutely nail the process, um, it would be a case that, uh, you know, we, we do uh, a blind CV screening. So that's the first stage. And um, so again, the back to that kind of inclusivity at the heart of the FT and that that resonates through our hiring process, our talent acquisition, uh, really, really focus on having a very like diverse upfront pool, because what you find is that as you go through the process, if you haven't got that really diverse um, pool up front, then the um, inclusivity of the candidates you've got left um, isn't necessarily as, as diverse perhaps as, as you might have initially uh, wanted. So we work really close with uh, talent acquisition to help us do that. And then we have a process where we do um, some blind questions. So candidates will be asked maybe to spend 20 minutes or 30 minutes 
uh, just to answer some questions offline and that we're then kind of reviewing a blind way to support that. And then it goes through to a uh, application process where uh, we um, you have a, both a competency and a, a technical uh, interview. I'm not going to disclose any more about that, but uh, those are roughly uh, 45 minutes to an hour. And we try and put those together so that it's not too long. And then uh, all being well, at the end of that process, you'll, you'll get to meet with me, which is a little bit less formal, a bit more of a, an enjoyable conversation where I can chat a little bit about um, the kind of aspirations, and the vision for the team and what you'll be doing from kind of day one to say day 1000 all being well. So, yeah. So um, <clears throat> Alex is going to brush up on his R skills and then uh, you'll get a CV soon. Yeah, I'll just learn everything right. from scratch <laughs> by tomorrow. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> There's a data science boot camp, right? <laughs> so um, just to wrap things up, um, what advice, any tips, words of wisdom you would like to share with students looking to break into data science now? Um, be yourself be very authentic I think I think it's more becoming more acceptable to be your authentic self uh, when you're looking for new opportunities uh, it's hard to find something that you kind of you actually feel passionate about and, and want to do but try and prioritize that even when kind of the job market is quite difficult um, I think passion really does make a difference um, even if you can just find something whether that be that creative outlet or it be an area that you have interest in and then my final advice is make mistakes it's absolutely fine people's career curve career paths are very curvy uh, they're very non-linear um, everybody makes mistakes and you will learn way more from them than you do from being perfect success every single step of the way so feel free to find somewhere that you can make those mistakes and you feel empowered to, to make them so you can learn more awesome beautiful uh, Anything else you'd like to shout out to share with uh, with our audience? No, just a big thanks to, I guess, my team and, and at the FG Data Science who make it such a pleasurable place to work and make me smile all the time. And therefore, when I do get to talk about my team, I get to have this big smile on my face. So thanks to you both for having me on. It's been really, really lovely. Yeah, I think that that comes across um, really well. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, Leanne. It was lovely very interesting and insightful conversation um hopefully we'll have you back soon no thanks so much and let's hope that the things i said about chat gpt don't come back <laughs> to <play. laughs> i have to do some interesting edits there with the dog and the, whole, like, you know, the lack of recording uh, i look forward to seeing how it turns out i'm hoping it, it works okay oh yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be amazing and we'll schedule another one in six months time just to review the chat gpt forecast <laughs> Yeah, I pick myself. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, thanks again, Leanne. See you soon. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks.